The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is absolutely my honor to welcome my guest, Mr. Mataka Askari. He is based in Columbia, Missouri. The reason why I wanted to have him on with me is that he has just spent 23 years in prison for a nonviolent drug offense. We rarely have an opportunity to speak to someone who has had this length of time in prison. I want to talk to him about the food system and the food he experienced there. Welcome, Mr. Ascari. It is an honor to have you. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to be able to share the information that I have, and hopefully it'll maybe wake people up and give them a better insight as to what's going on. Well, you know, when we think about our prison system, I think most of us on the outside think about corrections as a rehabilitation opportunity. So we take an individual who has been arrested, been incarcerated for a crime, they've done their time, but during that time, we hope that they will be rehabilitated so that when they get out of the institution, they will be a fully productive and contributing member of society. As a dietitian, I know that food is part of rehabilitation. It is part of physical and mental health. So I'd like for you to just tell your story. You were 23 years old. You were arrested for a nonviolent drug offense. Yes. What happened after that? Uh, I had a situation where I was sentenced to 30 years with a mandatory minimum, and I was sent to the old MSP slash Jefferson City Correctional Center, not the new one that they have now. The one that I was in is an historical landmark now, and they do tours. It was an old prison, dirty. It was Mm -hmm. there since the 1800s. And so I went through the prison system. First, I want to just say this to people, right, that everything about prison, and I know people think that because we've been convicted of a crime that we may deserve whatever treatment that we get, but everything about prison is dehumanizing. And when we understand what the word dehumanize means, because it's used frequently, I think that sometimes it loses its impact. It means to take away or reduce you to something less than human. And so the whole process is about reducing you to less than human. It's about breaking you down, right, everything. And that includes the food that they give you. And Mm -hmm. so when we, as you said, nutrition, food, is good physical health leads to good mental health because you have to be stable. Your body has to be right in order for you to pursue health in other areas. And the food system in prison is definitely not geared toward that. And so I did 23 years, and it was a long time, and it was a struggle for me to get through that. And fortunately, like, I had a good support network, but everybody is not fortunate enough to have that. And so, like, food is an issue in there. Number one, the quality of food is terrible. Like, it's terrible. And I know people are saying, well, you know, you all made choices to go to prison and you all did this. But if people actually knew what it was and how it was, then they would be appalled at it because people's tax dollars are going toward rehabilitation, not just punishment. Because right. people people are reentering into the societies. Right. Well, you know, I heard a gentleman speak who worked for the 
Federal Department of Corrections, and he said, the punishment is being removed from society. The punishment should not be extended inside the prison, and it certainly shouldn't take the form of the kind of food that people eat. I know that the amount of money that is spent per meal is quite low, and it can range from anything from slightly under a dollar per meal or to around $3 and change for the day. So those are for three meals. So it's going to vary by institution. You began your sentence at the Missouri State Prison, which is located in Jefferson City, Missouri, which is the capital of the state. What kind of structure was there? How often did you get to eat? Where did you eat? What was it like? Well, the quality of food was different. It was slightly better then, so I have to be truthful, right? It was slightly better then because people had jobs there, and they had a small economy where even though that the portions were strategically low and the meals were spaced out in a way where if you ate dinner at a specific time and you had no help and you had no job and you had no way to generate income, then you weren't able to go to the canteen to be able to purchase things. And so nine times out of ten, like, you would be hungry throughout the night until breakfast came. Mm-hmm. And that's just how they have it structured. They send you to breakfast early, and the meals are planned in such a way where people could, dinner is over with like 530. And then the rest of the night, if you don't have any help, then, you know, you don't have anybody who is supporting you, then you don't have the the finances, the income, or the money to be able to acquire the things that the canteen have to be able to stave off hunger. And so the food was okay right then. Mm -hmm. But as time progressed, though, it got worse. Was that because the budget was cut? Absolutely, because the budget was different. I see. The budget was different. The budget was cut. Things have changed. Plus, though, let's not forget this, though, right? We we cannot forget that this is a money-making entity. And I think sometimes we forget that. Like, I think we think that this, this is this noble entity that's going to act on the behalf of society to punish some and rehabilitate others. But that's not how it operates at all. That's a misnomer. And people don't understand that. Like, their tax dollars are going toward this. If people were to actually go in unannounced and had a tour through prison, unguided by staff who strategically set it up to look like it was humane, they would be appalled at the conditions that they see. Right. Yes, I can't imagine a, being 23 and losing 23 years of your life in that way for a nonviolent offense. Yep. And mm. so you said something that was important too, right? Nutrition. Food is important because, you know, like the body has to be stabilized. You know, Maslow has a hierarchy of physiological needs, and food is the very first thing. And so if you don't have food, then nothing else is really important. You ain't trying to learn nothing. You're not trying to seek no spiritual anything. In the end, you're trying to make sure your physical needs, your primary needs are taken care of. And so if you have a food system that's set up in a way where the nutrition is low, the quantities are low, and the uh, it's spaced out in a way to make sure that you're going to experience hunger because in the end, I'm not trying to make sure that you're full or satisfied. I'm trying to cut costs and maximize profit. Then what happens? I'm forced to lean on my family to help me. And then what if I have no family? And then when we look at the DOC in Missouri, the majority of prisoners make $7.50 to $8.50 a month, a month. And so when you don't have help, and then you're not able to generate income. What happens? What happens when there is poverty in the community? It creates a criminal climate. Right. 
It creates a criminal climate where people prey on each other. Right. And so this goes on inside the Department of Corrections, too. Right. And people who are responsible for eliminating these things, who have the power to change it with the stroke of a pen, with an SOP, with an IOC, they can do this, but they won't eliminate it because it's advantageous because it generates more profit. So if you were earning between seven fifty and $8 per month, that tells me that you had some sort of job within the prison. Well, you don't have to have a job to do that, but that is the base pay for everybody. And when you consider that you have to buy hygiene products, uh-huh. like you have to take showers, you have to have deodorant, you have to have toothpaste, you have to have the things that you need in order to make sure your hygienes are right. After you get through buying all of that monthly, with, the, with that amount of money, then you don't have anything else left to buy food that could help sustain you through the hunger I see. or throughout the month. And so that's how it's set up. It's set up in a way that it creates an internal form of poverty within the prison system. I see. You mentioned in a previous interview that you came from a place of poverty. Yes. Uh, you grew up in St. Louis, if I understand yes, I correctly. Yep. So you were already experiencing that kind of environment where perhaps you were not getting enough to eat? Right. So It's it's a microcosm of what it is that I came from anyway. So I was used to surviving. Right. It's just fortunate enough that as time moved forward, right, I start developing an understanding of things, reached out to people, people reached back to me, and I start developing a good support network. But that's just me. Like there are thousands, tens of thousands of people in the Missouri Department of Corrections. And I would say somewhere in the high 70-plus percentile range don't have help because most have burned bridges because of drug addiction. Most people suffer from the out-of-sight, out-of-mind syndrome where people abandon them and lie to them. And so, but even these people, when they want to work because they're in in an environment where they know that they have to work in order for them to survive, They do not even have access at the jobs to generate the income to be able to sustain themselves for a month. Mm $8.50 a month. Imagine if all your utilities were paid, every one of them. Do you think you could sustain yourself or maintain off $8.50 a month? It would be virtually impossible. Right. And, And so poverty creates criminality. I come from that. So I know what poverty looked like. So I went back through my studies and I start reflecting in my life, what maneuvered me into criminal activity? The desire to have the things that I need and the things that I wanted. And I felt like there were no routes to me getting that because of the way that I thought at the time. But prison is an actuality. Like, even though I know that a lot of people are handicapped thinkers, because I believe that I was handicapped in my thinking because of certain factors that influenced me to believe a certain way about myself. But in prison, in prison, it's a reality. Like, there are no ways that you can literally improve yourself. You have a man that could put in 100 man hours of work, 100 man hours, and he can't even buy himself a CD player. Hmm. Tell me, how much physical activity were you allowed? It's been reduced greatly since from the time I came until now. Like, they get out in Algoa, it's a level one institution, minimum security, so they get out pretty frequently. There, but other institutions, the recreation is more controlled because the higher the custody level, the more tight the recreation. And so people get out some, but not that often because everything is about depriving, control, and dehumanization. Sometimes they do count 
and they miscount up intentionally. Sometimes they extend food, the main line, for uh, beyond the amount of time that it takes for them to complete it uh, or after it's complete so that way they can deprive people of recreational activities. And you know and I know, too, like recreation is one of the most important ways that people relieve the stress that's caused by being in prison. Right. And when you deprive people of that and you continue to reduce their existence, right, then it creates a stressful situation. Accompany that with a poor diet, and you have a recipe, yeah. a toxic recipe for people. And then these people, like me, right, who did people that did not take the course that I've taken, because they may not have been strong enough, or they may not believe that it was the, may have not believed that it was the right course for them. They have fallen victim to other things, and they have not taken the time to put themselves in a better position. And so my thing is, how are they coming back to these communities? And so when people want to look at the rates of recidivism, when they want to say, okay, well, this person is going to fail, this person is going to do this, we have to look at the entities that we entrust with the rehabilitation process, and we have to look at them closely, and we have to watch what they're doing because it's like we don't really care, but we care when we come back to the community. Mm-hmm. And so the dehumanization process, after you break me down, there is no rebuilding, and mm-hmm. then you put me back out. And so just think about this phrase. Michelle Alexander used this phrase. She said, she used the example of somebody being harassed and then them going to complain to a superior law enforcement officer. Yeah, they, they treated me like a criminal. Think about that phrase. How are criminals treated? So how are we treated as criminals? So that means that I'm treated in the way where you don't respect me, you don't honor me, you degrade me. And so when you have people who live in an environment where they are constantly bombarded by this culture 24-7, and then you tell them, okay, you can go free, what do we think is going to happen? Mr. Ascari, let me take one moment to interrupt and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Mataka Ascari. At 23 years old, he received a 30-year prison sentence for a nonviolent drug offense. He served 23 years. He is now free. He is living in Columbia, Missouri, and we are talking to him about his prison experience. I'm especially interested in food and physical activity because we so rarely get an opportunity to know what happens behind those prison walls. I want to just remind our listeners that Michelle Alexander, who you mentioned, is the author of the new Jim Crow. You also mentioned that you were in Algoa. That is a correctional center that is a minimum security prison. But when you first went to prison, you were in the Missouri State Prison. Right. And you moved from the state prison to Algoa. No, I moved from the Missouri State Prison through, through various custody chains and processes. Like I went from the Missouri State Prison to a couple of other prisons, Bowling Green, Crossroads. They shuffle you through the system as your time decreases. Your custody level automatically drops, and then you descend the custody ladder, and you go to what's supposed to be less restrictive prisons. But it's not like that. I see. So we should focus on the food. You mentioned that hunger is pretty typical, and I can imagine for a 23-year-old young man, uh, (laughs) you were quite hungry. I was. Right. And so, (laughs) so clearly you were feeling hungry, and if you didn't have enough 
money or resources either coming in from the outside or that you saved from the small amount that you received in prison, then you couldn't purchase items in the commissary or the right. canteen. Tell me what kinds of products you could purchase for sale and how much did they cost? The staple food in prison is uh, ramen noodles. And right now they're like 30 cents a pack. They have various forms of pasteurized processed cheese. They have these summer sausages, potato chips, no real healthy food, just stuff that's designed to, I guess, they sell to us so we can have treats. But, I mean, the, the health benefit and value in them, I think the healthiest thing that they sell in the canteen is uh, honey and beans and maybe peanut butter, but the quality of that is going down because they always try to find the cheapest product so they can have the highest markup so they can pull the greatest profit up out of it. So they'll tell you that the the money is going to the inmate canteen fund, right, which is responsible for buying the things that we need, the library, uh, the sports equipment, and so on. But my thing is go into one of them prisons and look at the libraries and the sports equipment and the things that they say that the inmate canteen fund money is used for. And then the questions will start coming up. They say, if you want to know the truth, follow the money. It's all about generating money. Right. right? And so for me, when we understand, like, there is no – the predominant at the atmosphere is not a rehabilitative one. And then we wonder why the recidivism rate is so high. And I use this example all the time. I ask people, if I worked in big tobacco, why would I want people to stop smoking? Right. And because it affects my bottom line. So if we want, why would we want to really rehabilitate people? Because if I was an effective rehabilitator, right, then that means that I would rehabilitate people and it would put me out of a job because I would be able to correct the things that I said that I can correct. And then there would be no more need for me once the corrections are done. And so now I'm out of a job. So it would be counterproductive for me to actually be in the field of corrections and rehabilitations and actually correct and rehabilitate. Now, you mentioned we were talking about physical activity, and because you were in different facilities, you had different experiences. Right. So the higher the security, and I'm assuming that the word custody refers to security, the higher the security or the custody level, the less time you had to be freely moving about. Right. Tell me what kinds of physical activities you were afforded. Well, the basic prison stuff, they have weights. They have treadmills, they have basketball, they have a track that people can run on, they have softball, and then various other little activities, pull-up bars, dip bars, and things of that nature. So depending on the institution, depending on the culture, the institution, depending on what's going on that day, you may get an hour, hour and a half, maybe at the most two hours when you're in the higher custody levels to get out there and work out. And everybody is trying to get out there and work out because people are conscious of the fact that most of the food that we ingest, right, because we don't have the healthy food options that we should have, they're trying to run the poison up out of them. They're trying to do something to sweat so that they can push it up out of their bodies because, I know and you know like that a lot of the illnesses that we suffer from are related to the things that we eat. So if you had one or two hours where you could have physical activity, where were you the rest of the time? When you're in a maximum institution, you're locked in the cell unless you're going to some type of medical call out or you're going to mainline, which is food, to get off our meals. But most of the time, you're locked in the cell in the the higher custody levels. But now... 
as recently, like in the last five or six years, they've transformed the system. So really, it really don't make no difference what the custody level is. Unless you're living in an open dorm area type prison, you basically confined to your cell or to the floor that you live on. So it's still just confinement. So how large was your cell? About the size of a walk-in closet. It's a cl- We used to refer to it as a closet with a toilet. Yeah. And you and somebody else live in there. Not just you and somebody else. So it's not you by yourself. You always got a cellmate. That- and so now this presents another issue. Like you have to make sure that you have somebody that you are compatible with. Because people have died being in the cell with people who that they may not get along with or be compatible with. And so people are actually insensitive to that too. Not all of them, because some people try to do what they can to make sure that you are in a a situation where you can cohabit, live in the cell with somebody. But in a lot of cases, sometimes people don't get along and people foot drag when it comes to correcting that situation. And that can also be toxic and lead to a bad end. So you are in this confined space, and I'm assuming that you get out three times a day to eat? Yeah, and then, you know, like, they also give you this thing where they have this what's called the nine-man cell rotation where they let you out for, it used to be six for 20, now it's nine for 30. They let you out to shower phones and get ice and if you're not doing any of those things if you can't make it to the phone you're not taking a shower and you don't need ice you got to stay in the cell i see so a lot of people just you know act like they're taking a shower act like they're getting ice because people want to come out and stress their legs like it's unnatural to just be caged and when we was talking about like nutrition right and how most of the illnesses that we have are related to a diet that's deficient in nutrition i want you to think about these medical companies right get all this money for giving out all these pills for illnesses that can probably be traced to poor nutrition. Mm -hmm. And so it's a money-making entity. So when you were being fed, I know that at least the Federal Department of Corrections follows the dietary guidelines, and the diet in a federal system, those are the guidelines by which the meals are prepared. In jails, in other facilities, it may simply be that the recommended dietary allowance for vitamins and minerals are provided, and it could be a fortified food. How often did you eat fresh fruits or vegetables? Uh, They usually have fresh fruit maybe once a day. They may have apples uh, or oranges. Sometimes they may throw a banana in there every now and then, but they have it at least once a day. I never really was a big breakfast guy because even though breakfast is the best meal of the day, like it's early in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, 5.30, and, you know, like that usually was my meditation time. So I had to get my mind right every day to prepare to deal with whatever it was that prison would throw at me without overreacting because I knew that I was going home. But you get fresh fruit, maybe in most cases, probably once a day, maybe. What about vegetables? All the nutrition is basically cooked out of the vegetables. Every now and then you get some substandard salad. And then periodically, periodically, like for holidays, for example, right, they'll give you a hamburger and they'll give you tomatoes and onions. What did you have on Thanksgiving? They have turkey parts and green bean casserole, gravy, mashed potatoes. But the the quality, see, it sounds good, right? Mm. People can say, oh, okay, that's a good meal. But when you look at it, and you look at the quality of it and the quantity of it, then it becomes crystal clear. Because just say, if you, I, I used to joke all the time, if you look at the menu that they put out, 
you'll think that we eat in a gourmet restaurant. But when you go look at it, right, it's absolutely different from what it is on paper. Mm-hmm. Now that you are a free man, I asked you when I saw you personally what your first meal was, but let our listeners know, what is the first thing you ate when you got out of prison? Well, I'm trying to figure out what the absolute first thing I ate was, but I know like as far as like junk food, gum. Gum. I ate gum. Um, let me tell you everything that I've eaten, because I just got through eating today at a uh, place called Cheddar's, and I'm stuffed. <laughs> like, I know I have gained uh, at least seven or eight pounds since I've been released. But, like, uh, sunflower seeds, I've eaten fresh vegetables. You know, onions, I love onions, and onions were considered to be contraband in there unless they had them at the uh, chow hall, is what we call the dining room, unless they had them in the chow hall. Why were they contraband? Because you can't have onions in your cell. They won't sell them to you. So, you know, sometimes we did what we had to do in prison to get what we needed. And onions are a rarity. And so when you get them, you cook them with everything. And they taste so good and they enhance the flavor of food. And so, like, I love onions. So I've been eating a lot of onions (laughs) because now, right, I can eat them without having to worry about getting in trouble for having an onion. Yeah. Oh, the Like it's a security threat or something. An onion. Yeah, that seems odd. Well, were any of the facilities where you were at, did any of them have a farm program? Well, they had gardening programs, but we didn't get to eat the food. Like the prisoners would, they set it up as a vocational rehabilitation program. Yes. But all the food that was cultivated was sent and donated to uh, outside uh, entities. Like we didn't get to eat any of it. What if- and if you got caught with any of it, you would get in trouble. So if you wanted to say, if you were growing kale or, or greens and you took a leaf and you ate it, what would happen? Depending on who it was that was supervising the situation, you, would be, you could be terminated from the program. You could receive a conduct violation and you would go to a place that's called the hold. That's disciplinary segregation. I, since I brought disciplinary segregation up, I just wanted to mention this too. Like we understand that food is important to nutrition, but nature is also important to good health. And so we have uh, places in the DOC where they have cells, where they literally, in administrative segregation and disciplinary segregation the whole, where they literally have put up things to block out the light of the sun. Mm. Like they block sunlight out. Mm. Mr. Ascari, it has been an absolute enlightening conversation with you this afternoon. We just have a minute. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with? Yes. There are a lot of people in prison who want to do better. Uh, A guy said something on one of these commercials. I forgot which commercial it was. He said, we live in a society that equally distributes talent, but it doesn't equally distribute opportunity. A lot of people don't have the opportunity. They have the will. They have the talent, but they don't have the opportunity because people have been conditioned to think a certain way. And to me, right, if we would just think about it, I'm not saying that there are not things that can be offered, but rehabilitation has to start with you as an individual. But the programs that are put forth, tradition, right, maybe within the exception of the last couple of months in the DOC have been traditionally deficient and ineffective. The recidivism rate speaks to it. And I always tell people, like, if we were to judge the DOC's rehabilitative ability on a business model of success-failure ratio, you would have a board across the DOC with an out-of-business sign sprayed across it. But because people are lining their pockets, it's still going. 
So people just need to think about that because we're coming back to these communities, and we want to come back good fathers, good husbands, good sons, and good brothers. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. much. I hope I was helpful. Absolutely. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOBN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Mataka Askari, a gentleman who served 23 years in prison for a nonviolent drug offense, giving us just a little glimpse of what life is like behind bars so that we can all have more compassion, focus on rehabilitation and prevention. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.